the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back. Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022. Exquisite rituals of essential meaninglessness. That is what we are seeing at the Senate Judiciary Committee. We are engaged in performance theater to no good end, but it's not exactly our fault. The nominee submits herself to questioning. Everyone knows where she stands on the major issues we all care about when it comes to the law and culture, on all issues related to the definition and protection of life, to the use and abuse of race in any kinds of civil rights case or affirmative action scheme, to the free exercise of religion and the Establishment Clause. And we hope a few questions and answers from Republicans will make a difference. They won't. Josh Hawley has a hell of a series of records and questions that in a normal world would prevent Judge Brown Jackson from ever being nominated. The world of the media and news turns the tables to engage in the spin work of making Josh Hawley look like the person in the wrong, the person distorting the record. This is made all the easier when the cable networks from PBS to Fox News Go to live programming as they did yesterday when it comes to Josh Hawley questioning Judge Jackson and taking the cameras and the microphones away from the hearing. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the Democrats will defend her and smear Republicans for questioning her on her record and philosophy because the Democrats actually, guess what, agree with Judge Jackson on her record and philosophy. Another indice in the annals of the Democrats not being shocked when we point out their radicalism because they themselves don't recognize what they stand for as radical, including the use and abuse of children. I mean, after all, we just went through two years of abusing children in the name of COVID to make adults feel better and to soothe adult neuroses. By the way, quick insert. With all the talk about everything going on, did we notice that alcohol deaths, deaths related to alcohol overdose, increased 25 percent during the COVID lockdowns? That just came out. In fact, more people under the age of 65 died from alcohol overdose than COVID. Don't ever forget that. I beg of you. Those of us who predicted it are not surprised. Those who denied it was important in the first place will never see it. So they will feel no obligation to do anything about it or rethink their policies, or apologize. This to remind, in addition to a nearly 30% increase in drug overdose deaths. We can circle back, but just a marker, we operate as if our political opponents view life the same way we do, and argue on those grounds, just as we assume our international enemies see life the same we do, and will operate that way in fields of war. Neither do. But a few thoughts on the Judge Jackson nomination. First, let's establish that along the same lines above of assuming the other side cares about what we care about. We care about the rule of law, the Constitution, fairness, and the role of the legal and court system in all of that. By their own words, the Democrats simply do not. The courts are simply sociology and political war by other means. Joe Biden himself said, both as a candidate and president, that his first nomination to the Supreme Court would be an African-American woman. 
as Rick Grinnell put it, let's be clear. Asians, Hispanics, men, and gays were not considered for this latest Supreme Court pick. You'd think a man boasting of his Irish heritage, as he did last week, Joe Biden, would be more cognizant of the notion that no Irish need apply and what that means to every other group in America. That's only one point. And not the most important one. Racism in the Democratic Party haven't been having been doubled down on and settled as an operational ethos for some time now. The larger problem is much more institutional and structural. For the Democrats, the Supreme Court is not about equal justice under law, the words etched into the top of its entrance in Washington, D.C. It's about a whole series of other things. It is in the first instance here about appointing someone of the favored race of the moment. By definition, the issue for the Democrats, or at least Joe Biden, was to get someone there for how she was born and what she looks like, irrespective of anyone better who may have been born or look differently. The criteria was first race and gender, the first hurdles to clear, then perhaps other criteria or characteristics. This, of course, was the same operational ethic in choosing the vice president. It was not about good governance, the seriousness of what the vice president might be called on to do, the necessity of a seamless and confident succession. Should that ever be necessary? God forbid. It was about picking someone who fit a racial narrative that could be weaponized in a highly racially charged country. There is no other reason to have selected a California senator. California was not a state in play. Kamala Harris was not a distinguished senator. There was no set of policies Kamala Harris was expert in to support lacking credentials at the top of the ticket. And when the National Democratic electorate had already kicked the tires of Kamala Harris for her own race to be at the top of the ticket, they found worn out, treaded and flat tires. We are seeing the wages of that decision now in the things we care about, but not evidently the things the Democrats care about. There is nothing Kamala Harris has spoken on or led or touched that has not been both cringeworthy and embarrassing to her and the country she represents. Again, not the concern of the Democratic Party. Just as excellence and open to every possible candidate for the job, Supreme Court justices are the concern of the Democratic Party. Rigid adherence to the progressive restructuring and redefinition of society is the concern of the Democratic Party, at least its leadership. I'm still not sure how much the base of the Democratic Party's November votaries see or know all this. We do know the media gives them a perverse and distorted view, as the Media Research Center pointed out just on the Biden laptop story. Nine percent of Biden, Biden voters in swing states would not have voted for Joe Biden had they known of the story, which would have translated to a Trump victory. They didn't know the story because the Democratic Party's communications auxiliary, the media and social media banned the story and dismissed it as Russian propaganda just I guess, as they successfully hobbled the entirety of the Trump presidency by calling down the reins of Russian propaganda as responsible for his victory in 2016. Who is it who sees all roads coming from Russia again? Well, when it comes time to instill the progressive agenda, the Russians will be used and deployed to do anything if the Democrats can work up enough of a rump to support their otherwise evidence-free claims. Heck, they'll even pay people to make up stories and lie about Russian disinformation and collusion if it suits their political as warfare concerns. But I digress on an aspect that, though it will be buried or made sport of, was perhaps one of the most telling moments in the hearings yesterday. 
It was the exchange with Marsha Blackburn who asked Judge Jackson if she could define what a woman is. Jackson said, quote, no, I can't, close quote. Blackburn followed up. You can't? Judge Jackson said, quote, I'm not a biologist, close quote. And of course, I know the audience can tell me what a zebra is, but I'm guessing few of you have degrees in zoology. But that's not the point. She knows what a woman is as much as she knows what a zebra is. It's that she will not admit she knows. She will not admit she knows the truth. This is from a judge under oath. Think of the implications of that. A judge wanting to be a Supreme Court justice, afraid to and feigning ignorance and telling the truth while under oath. We can get into that and what is behind all that. I did so last week. But hold that thought for a moment because there is something else here to be digested. She was asked yesterday about critical race theory in schools, particularly one she sits on the board of and said, as everyone in denial or the business of obfuscation says, her understanding was that critical race theory was a doctrine of pedagogy that existed only in law schools. Okay, even for a moment, accepting that answer is correct, arguendo. Well, how about it then? Does it not matter and just stay there? In the law schools, or does it inform people who graduate law school and then ply their education on the rest of society, especially with the force of law? And with that pedagogical approach, does the Supreme Court not deal with issues outside of law schools? Do they not deal with education issues? Do they not deal with race issues? Do they not deal with children's issues? Does it only deal with Harvard Law School issues? Judge Brown Jackson told the story last week of having a book by Derek Bell on her family coffee table. Derek Bell is one of the founders of critical race theory, a professor of law at Harvard. Just so you know what Derek Bell thinks about life outside of Harvard and in the real world, this is what Professor Bell wrote and published in a book when Clarence Thomas was nominated to the Supreme Court, quoting, quote, the choice of a black like Clarence Thomas replicates the slave master's practice of elevating to overseer those slaves willing to mimic the master's views, carry out orders, and by their presence provide a perverse legitimacy to the oppression they aided and approved. Given what is arguably a First Amendment right to act the fool for white folks, it would be regarded as unseemly for blacks who understand all too well why Thomas should not be on the Supreme Court to take the lead in opposing him, close quote. Can you think of anything more vile and disgusting to say about a fellow human being, much less a fellow member of the bar, much less any African-American, no matter what skin color yours is in the 20th century? This is the hero of the left. Judge Jackson is and may very well be the worst nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court in at least 100 years. Say a prayer for the country. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Let's go to Rick in Phoenix. Hello, Rick. Oops, missed him, lost him. I'll let him uh, 
I'll let him call back uh, if he wants to uh, or anyone else uh, who uh, is interested in uh, in um, in uh, in weighing in on the show. Uh, one other part I did want to get to about the uh, this is kind of an interesting tactic and maybe we should have seen it coming uh, on the Katanji Brown Jackson confirmation hearings. Um, Josh Hawley in bringing up Judge uh, Jackson's history with uh, child sex abuse cases and child porn cases brought out a talking point from the White House that the GOP is engaging in a dog whistle to QAnon or QAnon conspiracy theorists because QAnon, I guess, is so interested in or revolves around protecting children from sexual abuse. I guess that's the theory. Fox News puts it this way. Members of the legacy media appear to be on the same page as the White House regarding the line of attack towards GOP lawmakers during the Supreme Court confirmation of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. Ahead of this week's confirmation, Republicans led by Missouri Senator Josh Hawley have been scrutinizing Jackson's record on sentencing child pornography cases as the nominee is being accused of being soft on such heinous crimes. That sparked an avalanche of media fact checks accusing Hawley of being misleading and unfair with his accusations. But the criticism towards Hawley and his GOP colleagues have shifted as Jackson's hearings were underway. White House Deputy Press Secretary Andrew Bates tweeted Tuesday that Hawley's embarrassing QAnon signaling smear has been fact-checked and denounced by, and he lists a series of news organizations from the Washington Post to the New York Times, AP, CNN, ABC, you name it. Notice that. Hawley's embarrassing QAnon signaling smear. The QAnon jab towards Republicans referring to the conspiracy group was reverberated throughout the media. Wolf Blitzer, this is about appearing... To the excuse me, this is about appealing to the QAnon audience. Jeffrey Tubin at CNN: This cult that is a big presence in Republican Party politics now is where Senator Holling is trying to ingratiate himself with that group and run for president with their support. CNN's Abby Phillips said Tubin was absolutely right, saying Holly's line of question is quote definitely a dog whistle to the kind of QAnon right close quote. Washington Post columnist Paul Waldman used a similar framing to attack Hawley in a piece slamming Republicans for their bad faith attacks on Jackson. Quote, Senator Josh Hawley, in an apparent attempt to secure the QAnon vote when he runs for president, tore a few sentences and previous rulings and writings out of context to make the repulsive accusation that she is soft on child porn. Close quote. You get the picture. I could give you a lot more examples and a lot of evidence. Kind of interesting that in Josh Hawley's interrogatories questioning of Judge Jackson yesterday, which went on for 30 minutes and wasn't covered live on cable or network, was if you do go back and watch it, you can now get it uh, on C-SPAN. If you do go back and watch it, um, there was no evidence put forward by Judge Jackson that her rulings and writings were taken out of context by Josh Hawley. 
That was never demonstrated. There's no one who knows more about those cases other than the defendant, the victim, the victims, and Judge Jackson. And she never made a correction of Josh Hawley. Go, read it. If I'm wrong, let me know. She could have. She didn't. She was simply saying that there were more things to the case. None of them ever made it to the point of common sense or dismissing what Josh Hawley was asking about. So this notion that someone is speaking out on behalf of child pornography issues or child sex abuse issues is really interesting that the liberals and the left want to abandon that completely and just attach that to some far-right conspiracy group or some far-right conspiracy theory. It's interesting because for years it was the Democratic Party that said they were the party of protecting children. It's interesting, too, because it seems to be in comport with everything the Democratic Party is now animated on in trying to protect children. If we're trying to protect children from being taught about and discussing themes sexual at age five, as the Florida governor is trying to prevent, they go haywire. They go hysterical. They have walkouts and protests from their private companies that have nothing to do with it and create skits on Saturday Night Live as well as editorials throughout the country denouncing the attempt to protect five-year-olds from having to be taught themes sexual and sexual orientation. That's an odd place to be, I think. It's a really odd place to be, but they are telling us who they are. They do not want to protect children from this kind of messaging anymore. I'm old enough to remember when Tipper Gore, a Democrat in good standing, was campaigning and lobbying in Congress to protect children from having to hear sexually abusive lyrics in music. I'm old enough to remember when Bill Clinton, as president of the United States, was touting the V-chip to be inserted in televisions so that parents could better protect their children from sexually advanced themes. These were things that both parties could agree on. Now it's just part of a far-right conspiracy theory to want to protect children. I guess when you are willing to watch children go through two years of emotional and mental distress, including suicide ideation and uptake and initiation of drug and alcohol use and emergency department visits because you must use them to satisfy your own neuroses about a disease that has a more than 99% recovery rate and that will not affect children when you're willing to do that? Yeah, I guess you're willing to tell us you just don't care about protecting children anymore, and those who do are far-right conspiracy theorists. I suppose now, well, I suppose now because I oppose communism, well, I suppose that makes me a fascist. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Um, there's a um, There's an old Steve Martin gag where he says it's just impossible to sing a sad song on the banjo, and then he tries to do it and he proves you can't do it. It's impossible in the same way 
to see, meet, or talk to John Dombrowski and not be upbeat. Uh, John, has anyone ever met you and not been happy to me? I mean, you just you have this charm about you, this optimism that is so infectious. Let me give you a proper introduction oh. first, and then you were – John Dombrowski is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. He has his own radio show here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m., The Word on Wealth. No, it's true. You are, yeah. you, are, you are one of the most constitutionally upbeat people I have ever met, and it's infectious, and it's, it's, it's needed, and we love you for it. Well, my gosh, thank you so much for that compliment. Amazing. Um, I would say this, Seth, is that there are you know, two ways that you could react to anything, right, a positive or negative. <laughs> and reacting negatively is not in my nature, number no. one. Um, but I work with people who come to me for advice and they're looking for um, advice that can help them be successful for their yeah. retirement and yeah. for their financial planning. And you know what? I, I make it my goal to make sure that, first of all, I give everyone the attention that they need, number one, no matter what the value of their assets are, um, but then giving them, an, you know, an option of looking uh, – uh, positively versus negatively, yeah. because that option usually will win out. And you know what? We have a way of making things work. I was just going to say, yeah, giving confidence, and yes. you have a way to do it, and yeah. that's just wonderful. All right, even even when stories are difficult. Here's one that I wanted to run by you. Mm-hmm. Mortgage refinance demand plunges 14% as mm-hmm. interest rates spike higher. Unpack that for me, and is this because of some of what the Fed has been doing? Well, yes, uh, there's certainly that, but there is, of course, inflation as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is also affecting home builders. There was a home builders report today talking about the average cost of homes uh, going up again uh, and that home builders are, are passing on the inflationary pressures that they're feeling onto the, onto the new home buyers now. So this is something we're seeing. People are spending more money now for housing. And not only are you spending more, but now the rates on loans are increasing. So it's a double whammy, right? You know, if I go back, uh, Seth, to 19, say, 90, uh, and interest rates maybe 10, 11%, but your mortgage was maybe $100,000, right? Because the cost of a house was $125,000. Right. Um, so 10% on that loan is a $10,000 of interest in a year. Where today you might have a three or four hundred thousand dollar loan, but at three percent, mm-hmm. so you're paying about the same in interest uh, that you were twenty, thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's getting harder and harder now, as we're seeing, and as interest rates begin to climb, if you're going to have a five, six, seven percent rate on your loan for a four hundred thousand dollar loan. The numbers are out of whack now. It's going to be very difficult for the average American uh, to be able to afford uh, buying a home. So you're getting priced out of this market, and that eventually will change because just as we're seeing now, this report shows that uh, the numbers are dropping rapidly uh, for homes that are being refinanced, and that's because – the rates are getting higher, the prices are higher, and people are getting priced out. So if you've got a loan, and even if you're paying more, you may not even be able to qualify for a refinance, if that makes sense, Seth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it does. The way you say it, it does make sense, uh, at least you know, physically and understandably, understanding the situation. 
what's hard to say is that it it makes sense that we are in this spot, uh, that we have arrived at this spot, which I think we could have seen coming, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, not necessarily you and me, but the policymakers, those involved in in macro and microeconomic uh, uh, public policy. It's it's just such an odd thing where people are being priced out and unable, as you say, average American unable to buy a home right now. Yeah, and they're saying the average conforming loan balance is $647,000. What does that mean? Tell me what that means. So that is the average loan balance for loans that are not what are considered uh, FHA loans or or government-backed loans. These are conforming loans. So, you know, you buy a house that's a million-dollar home. That's not a a home that would qualify for an FHA Uh loan if uh you're not putting down uh, a substantial amount of money. Right. Um, so, and again, I'm not a, I'm not a, a lender, uh, so, but, but this does, you know, dovetail into what I do, uh, for my clients sure. because they're constantly asking my advice about, Hey, should I refinance? Can I afford to buy a house? You know, what should we be looking for if we're considering, uh, you know, spending money? Where do we pull the money from? Uh, how are we going to pay for it? All of these things mm-hmm. come into play as a financial professional and trying to assist people in making good, educated financial decisions. And one of the biggest purchases in anyone's life is most likely their personal residence and it's becoming a larger purchase for people as we see moving forward we're going to have to discuss this further john thank you for that analysis appreciate it you bet securities and advisory services offered to client one securities llc a member of finrich sipic and an investment advisor grand canyon planning associates llc and client one securities llc are not affiliated bless you sir we'll talk soon thanks seth Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. As we do every Wednesday at this time is we check in with Brett W. Johnson, a partner at the Snell & Wilmer Law Firm here based in Phoenix, offices throughout the country. He is our Robert Jackson Fellow in Constitutional Studies. There's a lot to study these days, Brett Johnson, isn't there? There is. There is. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Always. Thanks for doing this. Uh, the thanks is to you, sir. Thanks is to you. A lot of things um, over the last a – lo- a lot of people the last, uh, let's say, two weeks, whether it was through NCAA swimming, whether it was through the hearings that we're going through now with Judge uh, Brown Jackson, people are hearing a lot about this thing called Title IX. Title IX. Uh, would you give us a, a, a sketch, a nutshell on, on what they're talking about, what Title IX is, what it was designed for, and why it's important in these discussions we've been having over the last several weeks? No problem, Seth. We'll be on for three hours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you've got the time, I've got the air. Yeah. I think that's and, the and ad for this. Yeah, no, that's a good one. I like yeah. That. So, yeah. So, <laughs> TM, yeah. trademark. Okay. Trademark. Yeah. Okay. The, the, and we'll talk about that next week. Yeah. There uh, you go. <laughs> the, the, the issue with Title IX, so back up real quick, be explained to the listeners. Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 is basically an amendment to the Civil Rights Act that goes back to 1964 and basically applied all of the civil rights activities to education. So discrimination um, amongst race um, in particular. And then Title IX is is specific as to gender to allow for equal access, primarily at the time was discussed, was for women Mm -hmm. to have equal opportunities to men in education. And that trickled over to sports and many... 
sports uh, teams, like basically let's talk about football. Football got the majority of scholarships in most schools, especially if you live in the South, mm-hmm. right? That's right. just been a traditional historical yeah. fact. I'm not offending anybody. Right. But that that was to the detriment of women's sports that did not have enough scholarships. And so between Title IX and Title X, it increased the number of, of women who were able to basically compete and have access to education, especially higher education. Mm-hmm. And it only relates, maybe it's the big thing, and, and we always talk about the power of the purse, and that's the, what Congress does, that only relates to those schools that are taking federal funding. Right. So if a school decides not to take federal funding, it can do pretty much what it wants and, and with obviously some other restrictions, but it would not be covered under Title IX. So it's the power of the purse. Can I pause you right there for just a sure. second? So people wondering, well, what, how many schools could that be? It turns out really very precious few. Uh, Hillsdale oh, would be one, good. and I think it may stop after one or two others after that, right? That, that's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, okay. and, and because the school funding, uh, let's talk about financial aid, right? Sure, that, yeah, uh, if, right? If you're taking federal funding and you're allowing students to um, take federal funding for their scholarships, then then that's going to be a hook for the right. federal government to right. come in. Right. Okay. Sorry um, about that. So, no, no, no problem. So going back to Title IX, and, and what I'll say is is that uh, this modern, um, maybe possibly abuse of, of Title IX, both sides are kind of arguing for it, and you see, obviously, historical context. So the, the Title IX, one of the arguments is, is that it should allow transgender um, uh, students and transgender athletes in particular, because that's the, the um, issue of the day, yep. um, because that would violate their um, that would violate their rights, mm-hmm. right? So it cannot you you cannot abuse um, Title Title IX in that context. But however, there's the alternative argument, and for for women, I think that women should be encouraging this argument is is that if you if you allow transgender athletes. Those transgender athletes are actually um, to the disadvantage of the women rights, and that was a major, major issue. And there's been very few courts historically who have who have dealt with this specific issue. Um, most recently, in Idaho, because Idaho passed what's called um, the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, which says basically if you um, are biologically a male, you cannot participate in women or girls sports. That was challenged, and unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, in, in last year, it was uh, subject to a preliminary injunction hearing, and the, and the court did it. And the reason being is, is that they that that judge felt like there was not going to be a substantial displacement. And what that means is, the one transgender athlete who is on the team is is not going to overwhelm all of the other opportunities for women on that team. Whereas going back a few years, of course, there's always a tie into Arizona. There always is, right? right. So, Seems so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Ninth Circuit in what's called versus Arizona Interscholastic Association, 1986, clearly said it was completely appropriate and not a violation of Title IX to bar men from um, competing in women athletics because the other option, obviously, would be the absurd. All the men would go over, take the scholarship opportunities, and um, quite honestly, the, the equalness that, that Title IX was supposed to, to promote and, and take those opportunities, and that was obviously um, upheld. So it's, it's kind of going um, back and forth. Unfortunately, with the change of administrations, President Obama's administration would have agreed with the Idaho court, district court. Mm-hmm. Um, President Trump's administration said it was a state law issue, let the states handle it.
And now President Biden's administration through the Department of Justice has come out and said that uh, uh, gender identity, transgender, is protected under mm-hmm. Title IX mm-hmm. and in line with uh, the Sports Athletic Association's NCAA, the Olympic Committee, that uh, athletes who, are, who identify as transgender can play in the sport of their choice. Uh, Brett, did the Supreme Court give up, the U.S. Supreme Court give up on some of this definitional issue in the Bostock decision of, what, two years ago, or does it still leave it ripe for litigation? It it completely leaves it ripe for litigation. And as as background for listeners on that, in the Bostock versus uh, um, Clayton County case, it was actually a Justice Gorsuch opinion, Mm -hmm. one of his first, um, who basically said that in the workplace that transgender um, individuals who identify cannot be treated differently than any other gender, mm-hmm. right? You, can, you, can, you can't discriminate against mm-hmm. them. And that, that obviously makes sense from a, from a Title VII standpoint. Yeah. Um, and then what has happened since then is Department of Justice has taken that Title VII analysis, analysis and tried to apply it to a Title IX, uh-huh. which, which would um, uh, obviously um, be in context. Now, let's go back to Title VII. Let's say, can it, would, would it have been appropriate for a transgender individual to take over, say, a, a woman's um, job, saying, mm-hmm. okay, we, you know, that would have then impacted the woman's right. But that wasn't before Justice Gorsuch. It oh. was just like, hey, everybody's equal. They're going into the workplace, having the misery of work and dealing with it, right? Mm-hmm. In this context, you're actually displacing, in the Title IX context, you're actually displacing another gender, in this case, women. Mm-hmm. And that is something that the courts have not really dealt with except for this Idaho court. Boy, ripe for litigation is a good phrase then, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and you're you're going to get it. Um, you know, Florida has come come through with yep. some laws. There's going to be other laws that are on point, and obviously they're going to try to structure themselves to to get up to the Supreme Court pretty quickly. And as we've we've talked about previously, nice, yeah, boy, what 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 the activists can do with quite simple language is just it's an amazing thing to me. The weaponization of words and the abuse of language. That was an essay of George Orwell's, and uh, boy, is was he right? Boy, did he predict what we would have to face. Brett Johnson, thank you for steering us through it. I appreciate your navigation as always, sir. No, thank you for having me. You betcha. SWLaw.com if you want to reach out to Brett Johnson or anyone at his great team, his great firm. I am uh, Seth Liebson and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, brought to you in part by the good people at Balance of Nature. Their fruits and veggies are what I take every single day. They have this proprietary blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables in vegetarian capsules. You just take them once a day, and you are good to go. Whole food nutrition, pure, potent plant power, 100% natural, not 99.9%, not 99 and 44 one-hundredths, as the song goes, 100% percent natural using vine ripened produce that is third party tested for everything from bacteria to metals give them uh yeah give them and check them out at balanceofnature.com balanceofnature.com their fruits and veggies keep yourself healthy keep your immunity boosted with the power of nature balanceofnature.com discount code balance discount code balance just a little uh, direction here for a few of you who have been calling in We'll uh, have a guest at the top of the next hour, David Schweiker. We'll talk about things going on at Capitol Hill you don't want to miss. In the third hour, 
uh, a very special guest, uh, one of the um, most, I, I would say, most powerful conservative women in America, certainly in Washington, D.C. She is the president of Concerned Women for America. She is Penny Nance, and uh, their organization came out with a very strong statement on Judge uh, Brown Jackson's hearings today. You're not going to want to miss that. But there's a lot of other stuff I want to cover as well, both here and abroad. Uh, On the case here, by the way, some of you have asked you guys not talk about COVID much anymore. We'll do it wherein uh, it's necessary. I mentioned uh, something having to do with it in my monologue, uh, and we'll talk about it there. Uh, There's a story the airline uh, CEOs uh, are now uh, weighing in uh, uniformly, in unison, unanimously. I guess that's the way to put it, uh, with the administration on mask mandates and airlines. You're not going to want to miss this. I guess I guess we're, we're, we're out and about as a society, or at least the progressives and the left and the crisis industrial complex is, because gosh knows, I guess to them we don't have enough anxiety in our society or world to deal with right now. They are out there looking for anyone who can help keep us in a COVID mentality. What is it my friend uh, up uh, in Star Valley, Tina, likes to say we need a Bill of Rights mentality? We are in, of course, a crisis mentality right now. Uh, Calm is the way. Calm is the way you run a safe and successful civilization and society. Not anxiety-ridden, not crisis-ridden. Anxiety is a disorder. Are we a disordered country right now. We'll talk about that, too. We may very well be. We're not a sick society, but we may be borderlining on it, given the concessions to anxiety that we seem to want to propitiate. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 